Well, good morning. I'm Camper Mundy, associate pastor here. Someone with a very similar name to me had a birthday yesterday, but it was not me. Uh, yes, I'm in denial. But uh, welcome. I, I, too, would like to welcome those of you who are visiting. Uh, we're always glad to have guests here, so welcome to you and to everyone a happy Advent. We are continuing this morning in the book of Revelation. Now, that may come uh, a bit of a surprise to some of you because if you were here last week, you know that we have been in a sermon series looking at the seven letters to the seven churches, Jesus uh, speaking his love to his church in chapters 2 and 3, and that we got to the seventh letter last week, thus wrapping up that sermon series. Well, this week we move to the very back of the book of Revelation, uh, picking up with chapter 19. Yes, we are springboarding from chapter 3 to chapter 19. And the reason for this, as Brandon and I talked about it, is we thought this was an easy way to get through the book of Revelation and leave out all that stuff in the middle that's kind of weird. <laughs> I take it by your laughter that you know that I'm not serious and hopefully think a little bit more highly of your pastors than that. Uh, but there is a purpose for it. Uh, because the book of Revelation not only tells us how things are now, but also points us ahead. And as we are in the season of Advent, a season of waiting, a season uh, marked by anticipation, we want to look to the very end of the last book in the Bible uh, and look at those last four chapters, a four-part Advent series, uh, Revelation chapters 19, 20, 21, and 22, with the theme of waiting. And as we anticipate Jesus' return, his second Advent, uh, what are some of those gospel promises uh, that we are waiting for? Well, next week, uh, we'll look at the fact that we are waiting for justice, full and final justice for all people. Uh, the following week, we will look at our waiting for healing, complete and total healing. And then we'll wrap it up looking at our waiting on the city of God, the new heaven and the new earth that is coming. And for us this week, we are waiting for the wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation chapter 19. Now, as I was working through this text this week, of course, I obviously thought about weddings uh, and marriage, and I remember a time when I was in college, uh, one day I was with my buddy Doug, we were sitting in the library, and I'm sure that we were supposed to be thinking about the exams that were right around the corner. But we found some more interesting topics to discuss that day. And the topic came up of dating and love and marriage. And as we were having this conversation, I remember Doug beginning to get a little antsy, looked a little anxious. And then he leaned in and he looked at me and he said, it's just not fair. I know that Jesus is going to come back before I get to get married and have my wedding night. Some of you are a little slow, but I'll leave it at that. And, you know, we do laugh at that a little bit, but I think it really exposes something for all of us because we can all fill in the blank. I'd really like to do this or that before Jesus returns. It exposes in our hearts a lack of true belief, a lack of, very, of real deep, grounded hope into all that is to come. Uh, there is a, a country song that says everybody wants to go to heaven 
just nobody want to go now. And that is my confession. I do listen to country music. <laughs> but I think that speaks so much. What do we really think about all that is to come? Because if we're honest with ourselves, I think deep down we have this hunch that Jesus' return, it's going to be good. But could it be that good? Could it be that great? And for that long, eternity is a long time. Well, in Revelation 19, we begin to catch a glimpse of a fulfilled yearning. That for which we most deeply long, more than anything else, we catch a glimpse of a wedding celebration. The eternal delight that we were created for. And that brings us to our text, Revelation Chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 1039. Uh, Let me take a moment to pray for us before we hear God's word. Our gracious God, we thank you that you are coming back. That there are so many wonderful promises for which we are waiting to see their fullness. And we ask right now that you would meet us through your word. That you would, once again, by the power of your spirit, speak the truth of your gospel into our hearts. And in those places where we lack hope. In those places where we struggle to believe that you would fill us. And that you would point us to the day that you are returning. To make all sad things come untrue. And so this morning, once again, would you open us to your word and your word to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear the word of God from Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. Remember, this is the Apostle John who is speaking here, who is writing. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And this is the true word of God. Well, this morning as we explore this passage together, we're going to pay attention to The three major players that we come across uh, in this text, the feast, the bride, and the husband. The feast, the bride, and the husband. So first, the feast. Uh, Here, Revelation 19, we find the feast. The feast of all feasts. The great eternal feast that celebrates the final and full deliverance of God's people, one through the blood of the Lamb, God's own Son, Jesus. Here we find the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
Now, throughout the Old Testament, the arrival of God's kingdom, the arrival of the new heaven and the earth, is referred to in terms of entering a great feast, a great celebration. Maybe you're familiar with this passage in Isaiah 25. Isaiah prophesies, On this mountain, the Lord will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. And then here, listen to this. On that mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast. A feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine. The best of meats and the finest of wines. And then as we move into the New Testament, here, our passage, verse 7 Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. In verse 9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And elsewhere in the New Testament, the arrival of God's kingdom is also referred to in terms of entering a great feast. Those of you familiar with the parables of Jesus, you may remember this story. Jesus tells it as recorded in Matthew 22 the parable that we know as that of the great wedding feast. It begins, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And Jesus then talks about those who were invited but didn't RSVP, and also about, those, also about the need to dress properly for the event. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Jesus is talking about his father and himself. Jesus is talking about the day that his father is going to throw a huge party, a huge party for his son, the day of his son's wedding. And that will be the feast of all feasts. Now, honestly, we in 21st century America know very little about big parties. Now, we try to throw some big big parties, and we actually, we have nice weddings, uh, followed by nice receptions, sometimes even sit-down dinners. I I remember this one particular wedding reception uh, that I was invited to showed up at this beautiful country club, and there were over a thousand people in attendance, available for everyone, steak, lobster, you name it. Expensive aged wines available. This party went into the wee hours of the morning until all of a sudden everyone heard a great thunder. And outside on the front lawn of this country club, a huge helicopter landed. And the bride and the groom began their honeymoon by taking off in this helicopter. (laughs) Heather and I had a great time on our honeymoon. Um... (laughs) Believe me, uh, that was not, uh, not our helicopter. But, you know, I mean, think about that. that. That seems like a big party. But apart from the helicopter, doesn't even compare to first century parties. They had flying chariots. Um, 
But seriously, wedding feasts, we need to understand what is going on, what wedding feasts were all about. Because in my experience, that was a fun and it was a great party. But nothing like the wedding feasts of, uh, of the Jewish culture in the first century. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. I'm indebted to my seminary professor, Daryl Johnson, uh, for explaining this. And, and I believe this is important because this overview is going to help us better understand what is going on in chapter 19 of Revelation. And it's also going to ha- help us better understand our place in God's great story of redemption. Okay, there were three steps in getting married. There was the betrothal, a much weightier form of engagement than we have today. Then the preparation for the wedding. And finally, the wedding feast. So that's it. The betrothal, the preparation, the wedding feast. Those are the three parts. Now, I need you to hang with me for just a few moments. Because I'm going to lay the groundwork that we're going to pick back up in points two and three. And will help make so much more sense uh, of the rest of this text. So it began with the betrothal ceremony. The prospective groom would leave his father's house and he would travel, accompanied by his best man, to the prospective bride's house. There the groom would finalize arrangements with the bride's father, settling on what's called a purchase price. And that day a woman was bought with a price, so to speak. As soon as the groom paid the purchase price, the marriage technically went into effect. The man and woman were legally husband and wife, although they would not live together for some time. She was declared consecrated, set apart for this man. A new covenant was established between them, sealed by drinking a cup of wine, over which a betrothal benediction was pronounced. This cup is a new covenant. Sound familiar? Then the groom would leave the bride's house and return to his father's house. He would stay there for roughly 12 months. And during this period of separation, the groom would prepare a room for the bride in his father's house. And also during this time of separation, the the bride would then prepare herself for the wedding. Now, although they didn't see each other, uh, they didn't see each other at all during this time. And although they didn't have sexual intercourse, they were legally and spiritually bound together as one. One particular historian notes this. So binding was this betrothal agreement, this covenant, that if the man died during the betrothal period, the woman was considered a widow. And to break the betrothal agreement was the same as divorce. Okay, well, at the end of this preparation period, the bridegroom, We'll get all dressed up, dressed up in this festive attire, and then accompanied by his best man and his friends, they would make their way uh, back, to, uh, back to the bride's house. Now, everyone had a rough idea of when the groom would come, but they didn't know the exact hour. They didn't even know the exact day. But to add to the element of surprise, it would typically be around midnight. So they have this rough idea that he's coming. And he's coming sometime, probably around midnight. And upon his arrival, would be preceded by the shout, Here is the bridegroom. Come out. Come out to meet him. And then with great joy, the bride, veiled, accompanied by her friends who were carrying lanterns, 
they would all come out and join the groom in his attendance. And then the wedding feast itself would begin. Now, as part of the wedding feast, they had a brief ceremony, what we would know as the wedding ceremony today. It involved the word take. The groom would take the bride from her home. That's where we get the Hebrew expression, take a wife, that you'll come across in the Old Testament. And after the groom took the bride, then the whole bridal party would make its way to the groom's father's house. And there they would find the wedding guests gathered and dressed in special robes. And then the feast would take off. Now this would last a lot longer than just the wee hours of the morning. This would last at least seven days. And oftentimes up to 14 days. Dads, how would you like to pick up the tab for that party? Okay, so you've hung with me. That's a little bit of the biblical and cultural background on feasts, and it's going to come in handy for our next couple of points. Because now we we shift to our, our second point, the second major player in our passage, the bride. The bride, verses 7 and 8. The marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The bride of Christ is his church, made up of men, women, and children who have put their trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God, looking to him in faith, trusting in his final and finished work on the cross. The bride of Christ. Now, guys, I need to talk to you for just a moment. I know this can be a stretch for some guys. But think about it. Our women always have to deal with being referred to as sons of God. So now it's our time to deal with being the bride of Christ. (laughs) But you see, this is the point. All of us. We were created for an unbroken love relationship with God. One of ever-increasing intimacy, depth, discovery, and joy. Is God our shepherd? Yes. Is he our king? Yes. But ultimately, he is our spouse, bound together with him. Victor Hugo, the French writer, once said, Life's greatest happiness is to be convinced that we are loved. Yet as Craig Barnes, a Presbyterian pastor, puts it, reflecting on this in the midst of our fallen condition, he says, we are a people who crave to be loved, yet fear to be known. We crave to be loved, but fear to be known. But the Apostle John speaks into even that. He wrote Revelation, but in an earlier writing of his, he writes, perfect love drives out fear. And that perfect love is Jesus. Ultimately, we were created for an unbroken love relationship with God, one of ever-increasing intimacy, depth, discovery, and joy. As Young Life puts it, you were made for this. This is what we were created for. But there's a problem. 
And you know the problem. We've confessed it already this morning. The problem is sin. We have loved other things more than God. And thus we have sinned. We have loved, put our hearts, invested our hearts in other things more than God. And thus we have committed adultery and are unable to have this love relationship with God. You know, Jesus' brother, James, maybe you're familiar with the letter he wrote, wrote a letter to the church, and at one point he cries out to us, Christians, the church, you adulterous people. Now that's quite the accusation. And quite the contrast, if you're familiar with the letter, you know that, that throughout his letter, James refers to us as my brothers and sisters, even my beloved brothers and sisters. And he also warns us about taming of the tongue. So we know that here, he is being quite calculated, quite intentional. Well, in the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament, James is accusing God's people of spiritual adultery. Jeremiah states, Like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel. And Jesus himself calls those who reject him a wicked and adulterous generation. Weddings. Well, that's what we're talking about. We have a lot of them here at Grace Covenant. Most of the time we have them in the summer. A lot of folks, though, like to get married at Christmas time. Beautiful time to have a wedding. In fact, I believe we've got one coming up here in just a couple of weeks. But imagine for a moment that you're sitting here. You've been invited to a wedding. It's not the Sunday morning worship service. And at this moment, I now pronounce them husband and wife, present them to you, the congregation, and then bless them as they leave. They process out of the church into the commons, and they have just a few moments together by themselves in the commons, their first moments as newlyweds, while we remain in here and finish singing the closing hymn. But imagine for just a moment that as this newlywed couple is out there, another man walks in. And the new bride looks at her new husband and says, Oh honey, I'm so glad that you get to meet my best friend, my other lover, who I share everything with, my hopes and my dreams, and we travel. I'm so glad that he was able to make it this day. Excuse me? No, it's hard to imagine. But as one pastor has said, just as no husband tolerates a wife who takes on another lover, so the Lord will not tolerate other lovers. You adulterous people. In essence, what is being declared here is this. You are betrothed to Jesus, and yet you are sleeping with the world. Christ dwells in your heart, and yet you invite other loves into it. Grasping for significance and meaning from other things other than Jesus. What do we love more than God? What, what are other loves that we, that we tend to put before our Lord and Savior? Those other loves might be our family, our career, being right, getting good grades, a political cause, a social cause, many, many good things, any number of them 
that we end up making ultimate things. Giving our hearts to them with such passion and such pursuit that our relationship with Jesus grows cold. Loving anything more than God is sin. To give our hearts to anything more than God is adultery. I think back to our our last sermon series. The very first letter in that series of letters at the beginning of Revelation. Written to the church at Ephesus, chapter 2. The church at Ephesus, they are commended for their doctrinal zeal and endurance. A very good thing. They stood for truth and defended it. But they are rebuked by Jesus for having forsaken their first love. For having loved right thinking more than Jesus. In essence, Jesus is saying, I want your whole heart, not just your good theology. And we see throughout Scripture that our God is a jealous God who will not tolerate other lovers. So what are we to do? Well, the beauty of the gospel is this. As we look into the mirror of God's word, as we we look in here, we see that on the one hand, we are adulterous people. Lovers of the world, unfaithful to God. But on the other hand, we see that we are a loved people. Loved by God. Who rather than despise us for our unfaithfulness, still desires us, pursues us, and gives us grace. As we heard in the Advent reading this morning, Isaiah declares, The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. One theologian states, The Lord, like a good husband, woos his faithless wife instead of seeking divorce. God comes after his bride. He comes after us to pay the purchase price, to prepare us for eternity, to marry us in in a union of unending joy and delight. And that leads to our final point. The final major player in this passage, the husband. The husband, again, verse 7. The marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has been made ready. The Lamb. The Lamb who was slain. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb who is our true spouse. Jesus gave himself for his bride, the church, in order to purchase her, prepare her, and marry her. In 2 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul writes to the church, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you to him as a pure virgin. Jesus is our true spouse. He is the church's one true foundation. You know the words we sing. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her. And for her life, he died. About A.D. 33, one night in Jerusalem, Jesus was gathered in an upper room with his disciples, sharing a Passover meal with them. 
He takes a cup of wine, gives it to them, and says, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. And then Jesus tells them that he is leaving, that he is going away, and that they can't come with him. They can't go with him. But he adds, Let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. And where I am, there you also may be. Do you hear the good news? Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Jesus is the bridegroom, the husband of God's people. We are the bride, the church. Jesus has paid the purchase price with his own blood. He has sealed the betrothal with a cup of wine. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Jesus is preparing a place for us in his Father's house. And he is coming back to take us to himself, to be with him forever. And right now, we wait. We wait eagerly. We wait patiently. We wait on the wedding, the greatest wedding celebration ever. And the gospel is the invitation. You hear it in this passage. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those who respond to the invitation become part of Christ's church, His bride. Have you responded to the invitation? Have you trusted in Jesus? Are you still trusting in Him? Looking to Him and Him alone. A fellow pastor was officiating a wedding a few years ago, and as usual, uh, the groom was standing at the front of the worship area uh, with the pastor just before the bride was to enter. The groom standing next to the pastor, and then that great moment in all weddings, the back doors open up, the bride walks in, adorned in a beautiful gown, and everybody stands, and of course, if you see the groom's face, groom's face always lights up, and she begins to, to process down the aisle. Well, this groom, so excited, so smitten at the moment, he turns to his pastor and says, I'll be right back, and he takes off down the aisle after his bride. How would it change you to really believe that this is God's posture toward you? How would it change you to really believe that this is how God in Jesus pursues you? Jesus is the only true spouse. The only one who can ever fully fill us up. And there is only one marriage feast that will truly give your soul, your heart, all the joy that you so deeply long for. And so this Christmas, as we are waiting on the wedding, this Christmas, yes, let's celebrate the first coming of Christ. We should. But let's also anticipate His return. The renewal of all things, the wedding 
of all weddings. This Advent season, let's anticipate the second Advent of Christ. And with the Apostle John, we pray, Come, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. What a beautiful text for the Lord to gift us with this morning as a church. Here in the the season of Advent, a Sunday where both services we celebrate this foretaste of the marriage feast of the Lamb, the Lord's Supper. A gift that Jesus, as we already looked at on that night with His disciples in A.D. 33, that night that He gave His church this gift, that we might not only look back, which we do, at the finished work of Jesus on the cross, and also a meal that very much feeds us here and now, God speaking His grace into our hearts, but a meal which always points us ahead, always points us to the day that He is returning, always pointing us to the great wedding feast ahead. Now having said that, this meal is for those who are engaged to be the Lord's. Who are betrothed to Him, joined with Him in that covenant. And so if you have put your your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God, you have professed your faith and stepped into relationship with, with Jesus and with His bride, the church, then this meal is for you. But God's Word tells us, if you are not yet at that place, then this meal is not yet for you. I don't say that to embarrass anyone. In fact, my hope is is that you are free to be who you are and where you are any time that you come to this church. That you don't have to pretend that you are someone or somewhere that you're not. And as you pass by, as you pass up on this meal, I encourage you to consider the Jesus that this meal proclaims. Now, God's Word also tells us that there are some who are betrothed to Jesus, joined to Him, and yet for some reason are holding on to other lovers, unwilling to let go and to turn toward Him. I'm not talking about simply struggling, for we all struggle with those other loves, but pursuing and running after and away from Jesus. In other words, unrepentant. Unwilling to turn to Jesus for His grace. And God's Word said, if that marks you this morning, then don't pretend. Don't take of this meal right now. But first turn to Jesus and then return to His table. And then that leaves the rest of us. Those of us betrothed, still struggling, weary of struggling with sin, in desperate need to taste of His grace, granted us, spoken into our hearts, through this very ordinary bread and this very ordinary cup. In just a moment, I'll remind us of those words that Jesus first spoke when He gave us this meal, this foretaste of all that is to come. Then I'll pray for us, and if you've been to our second service before, you know that the way that we serve the Lord's Supper here is I will invite the elders to come forward, and we'll first distribute the bread, uh, passing it 
down the rows as the plate comes by, tear off a piece of bread and then hold it until all have been served and then we'll partake together. After we have shared in the bread, we will then pass the cup in the same way. And I do want to remind you that in those trays as they go uh, back and forth along uh, the rows, the outer ring uh, of cups, those in, in the tinted uh, colored cups, that is a de-alcoholized wine. On the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. For whenever we eat this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death, His sacrificial death on our behalf, until He comes again in the fullness of His glory, ushering in the wedding feast of the Lamb, for which we have received the betrothal benediction. Please pray with me. Oh, our gracious Lord, we so deeply long for your return. We look to so many other things to fill us, to distract us, and yet this morning we come and we look to you afresh. And would you once again, through this gift to your church, this very ordinary bread, this ordinary wine, would you speak your grace, your gospel into our hearts would you help us to believe where, where we are struggling to believe? Would you fill us with hope where we are struggling to find hope? Would you stir up our faith? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.